Welcome to The Jolt. It's the 23rd of February. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. It's Friday, so you know what that means. Coming up later in the show, Kira will be joining me for our regular look back at the week in energy and climate news. Today we're talking energy taxation, solar geoengineering, interconnectivity, fairy magic, and much more. Stay tuned for that. First, let's have a look at the big climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. If you're Europe-based, you may well have noticed that it's a bit windy outside. That's because Storm Louis is sweeping the continent, pushing wind speeds up to 120 kilometers an hour. That's good news in Denmark, where for the last 12 hours, wind farms have been generating well over 5 gigawatts of power. That's more than 100% of Danish power needs, meaning there's been plenty of surplus green electricity available for export to Germany, the Netherlands, Norway and England. The conditions are expected to provide a welcome green boost for wind producers all over the place. An Italian association dedicated to the preservation and protection of bird species has released new sensitivity maps that should help wind farm developers choose sites that have a reduced impact on the animals. Lega Italiana Protezione Uccelli studied 33 bird species that are sensitive to onshore farms and 26 that are affected by offshore sites to produce the maps. The group acknowledges that wind power expansion is needed and hopes that this data contribution will help developers make informed decisions. Eight US states will be allowed to sell petrol with a higher ethanol content as of April 2025. The government has approved a request from Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Missouri, Ohio, South Dakota and Wisconsin to sell petrol with an ethanol content of 15% year-round. The standard ratio is 10%. The previous rules prohibited regular sales due to concerns over air pollution caused by the biofuel component. The corn-producing states have welcomed the move, according to The Hill, but environmental groups have panned the development. Fuel refiners, too, have criticised the rule change for coming in too rapidly, saying it will lead to shortages and increased costs. Egypt plans to upgrade its renewable energy target in the coming months, according to the African nation's petroleum minister. Tarek El Mola said that the current benchmark of 42% by 2030 will be increased to 60% as part of an ongoing update to the government's energy strategy. At an energy forum this week, the minister added that a recently launched hydrogen strategy and governance framework for the industry will be crucial elements of ratcheting up Egypt's renewables output. Two of Japan's oil and gas companies have signed a deal with a utility to develop what would be the country's biggest hydrogen project. Enios and Idemitsu Kosan have penned a memorandum of understanding with the Hokkaido Electric Power Company that will see them develop 100 megawatts of electrolyzer capacity by 2030. The firms are aiming for 10,000 tonnes of green hydrogen per year using the island of Hokkaido's plentiful wind power resources and to use the hydrogen to produce synthetic e-fuels. Interconnectors between Japan's islands are limited in capacity, and Hokkaido, Japan's most northerly island, is projected to host the lion's share of the nation's wind capacity in the coming years. Using the power to generate hydrogen has been pinpointed as a viable strategy by energy regulators. 
Azerbaijan's preparation for hosting this year's COP29 climate summit continues to raise eyebrows. Earlier in the year, organisers stoked controversy by appointing a management board that included no women, a decision that was quickly backtracked, and now a new update to the membership has set off yet more alarm bells. A presidential decree has added the heads of Azerbaijan's state-run oil company and the government's special communications and information service. See the full list in the show notes. And finally, the European Space Agency's next-generation rocket, the Ariane 6, is due for its maiden flight this summer. It will take off from the ESA's launch pad in French Guyana if conditions allow. But the rocket has been developed and built in Germany and France, so had to make a 7,000-kilometer-long voyage to make it to the launch site. It did it via a custom-built ship that uses the power of ocean winds to reduce fuel burn by 30% and increase efficiency. It arrived with its precious cargo earlier this week. Check out the link in the show notes for pictures of the vessel, which kind of looks like something out of a steampunk graphic novel. That's it for your news updates today, more on Monday. Now it's time for our Friday review of the week's biggest climate and energy developments. All right, Kira, another week done and dusted in climate and energy news. Was there anything in particular that caught your eye this week that really stood out? I think as someone who celebrated their 22nd birthday on the day of the Fit for 55 package, I'll always have a soft spot for it. Um, And so the return of the uh, Energy Taxation Directive, at least into the news, it has been interesting. I think it's something which everyone had sort of given up hope on. And so to see it at least being discussed is quite good. Whether there is anything that comes out of it is going to be interesting. I mean, the the Belgian presidency is running out of time to do something, but it's nice to see people talking about it anyway. It's like, yeah, lads, it's the end of February. They're all going off campaigning in like a month at least. So maybe that's part of the plan is to talk about it now because then it looks like you've done something. But, oh no, we ran out of time. It's one of those odd ones, though, isn't it, where it does seem to be maybe the key to everything else, where if you get this right and then you put in 30 years of tax and energy at the right level, then everything else falls into place. But because of unanimity, like you said, what can be agreed is anyone's guess. Yeah, it's really fascinating because it feels like quite a no-brainer. It's just mostly because of the EU process, it's going to struggle to do it. I mean, the same actually with the Energy Charter Treaty that we had the story on yesterday about the UK leaving. Really, it should have been modernised, but the modernisation of it was not ambitious enough, so they ended up having a less ambitious thing than the modernisation. And so now countries are leaving, but there isn't a coordinated leaving, so you do end up with that risk of countries suing each other. So I think the Energy Taxation Directive and the Energy Charter Treaty are both very fascinating because they're things where you think the answer is simple, but actually there's so much complication around how it works. And it comes down to unanimity for, for both of them, actually. The vested interests just seem to win out more than they do in other legislations and, and everything. What about um, other things that you covered during the episodes this week? Anything really sort of stuck in your mind to be wanted to add a little bit more than what we managed to do in the episodes? So I think for me, it's always interesting when stories line up. And for some reason on Thursday, there were just a load of reports about different countries' progress towards their, their climate goals for China 2025 and for Uh, The US, well, the US was more just saying clean tech, yay, it's going well. And then the UK and and the EU going, actually, 
that's more needed for 2030. So yeah, for the US, it was a very positive story, basically saying the Inflation Reduction Act is helping. For China, quite a negative story, particularly given the, the necessity to reduce emissions there, not just for China, but for the whole world, basically saying that it's going to have to do even more because its emissions are increasing from its uh, energy sector. For the UK, similarly, you know, more is needed to reach its 2030 targets. Also, kind of picking up on the uncertainty around some green policies. And then the EU needs more money. I think that's the story we hear quite often. So really interesting to see all of those come through on the same day and then see that while there are some positive steps, there's a lot more needed for 2030, which is now quite close. The point about the the targets like 2030 and everything put me in mind of another one that we covered this week as well about uh, these interconnectors between Spain and France. I think we've covered it before where Spain wants to plug into the rest of Europe's energy market more and more so it can export green electrons. And unfortunately, two of those projects that are supposed to go over the mountains into France have been delayed until maybe 2035. It's a huge delay. Absolutely huge. Again, that sort of opens up all these other bad possibilities where Spain wants to exit nuclear by 2035. So will it be able to do that if it doesn't have the interconnections with the rest of Europe? What's Portugal going to do? Because it's over there by itself, relying on Spain and France, teaming up actually on these things. And then you start to think, is this all kind of deliberate and political in a way? Does France not want Spain and Portugal to take over in a way as, a, as an exporter? And it was quite disappointing to read in a way that this has been delayed like that. Yeah, especially when you hear people talk about green hydrogen and the fact you know, Spain and Portugal have very good access to solar. So it would make sense to have that produced there. And also grids and interconnection, we keep hearing about that at the EU level being like, yes, it's so important. It will really help reduce the cost, reduce the you know, vulnerability of the grid. And then you get things like this where it's like, oh, yeah, maybe in 10 years time. I mean, at this point, I think it would be quicker to just carry batteries to and from. Absolutely. Just put them on trains. But then you can't take a train from Spain to France without it changing track either. So obviously there is a a disconnect there in more ways than one. So yeah, but there is another interconnection that's supposed to be coming online in 2028. This is an undersea one. But again, that's been delayed, delayed, delayed as well. So anybody's guess when this problem starts to be solved. That was my negative one for the week, but then my positive one was um, Rio Tinto, this massive mining giant, I think it's British, I'm not quite sure, said that it's going to buy 1.4 gigawatts of renewable energy in Australia to fund all of its, to, to fuel all of its aluminium operations. And that means that Rio Tinto has become the biggest renewable energy buyer in Australia because it has something like 2.2 gigawatts in PPAs. Wow. And it was like, well, this is a big polluting company that has a really big impact on the environment, actually doing something really positive. It doesn't mean that Australia will be able to build this massive wind farm because it needed this kind of support. And that will last for something like 25 years as well, because that's how long the contract lasts. So a bit of good news as well, I think. Yeah, and also really showing the value of PPAs in supporting renewable energy. Absolutely. I keep hearing stories about new ones coming online all the time, right? And just companies buying gigawatts and gigawatts here and there and money being guaranteed for 20 years, 30 years. Great stuff. What about in terms of the episodes you did this week? Was there anything in particular that you really enjoyed working on? I think the episode that I did on Tuesday about national energy and climate plans is really interesting because... It is going to be one of the next big focuses when we talk about implementation of the European Green Deal. 
and it sounds really boring but planning is so important and it's almost one of those areas where bureaucracy is good I hate to say it but I'm in Brussels so I feel like you you occasionally have to admit that some parts of the bureaucracy work but no I think it's interesting to see how EU countries are planning and also quite depressing to hear that you know when I asked is there a country that stands out to you that you know you can spread best practices from they're like no there are no champions in this it's not just climate action network who are saying this it's also been said by the european commission the european scientific advisory board has also warned about the eu not having enough progress to get to 2030 there's still an opportunity for them to change the final deadline is in june And yeah, I guess we just hope that the planning comes into place and then is actually implemented. But it is that thing of all of the legislation on the EU level. There's kind of no point to any of it if we can't do this at the national level and get it rolled out, which would be very sad given the amount of effort and the the need for tackling climate change. Fascinating part's going to come in after June, I guess, when the Commission goes through all of these plans again and sees what's been changed, how it's been changed. And if it'll be enough then, probably won't be. But remember last time they were doing this back in 2019, 2020, where a couple of officials were saying, well, this is where we bring the European Investment Bank into the equation because we'll go into a room, have a conversation with this country's representatives and say, look, you need to do this, this and this. This is my friend from the EIB. He's going to tell you what needs to be done, what they can offer you. And there's like this massaging of figures goes on behind the scenes because the commission doesn't have too much power really to say, look, Hungary, Poland, Romania, choose a country. You're not doing enough on renewable energy. So we're going to fine you because it just doesn't work that way because then you put yourself into a court case that lasts 10 years even if it gets that far. So it'll be fun to see the process of how they actually convince countries to do more. And I think particularly because every time round it gets harder. You're going to start with the easy stuff and now actually you're thinking maybe people are getting to the stuff which they maybe don't want to do, maybe is difficult when it comes to being re-elected. So yeah, if you can definitely pull the money strings, that, that always helps. I think my favourite episode from this week was the one I did on Wednesday on something that I thought was just science fiction before I started getting into it. And it's solar geoengineering, which is basically using technologies to lessen the impact of the sun on our environment. And there, I didn't realize that there were so many different technologies out there because I'd only heard of the one where you inject aerosols into the atmosphere, basically, which blocks out the sun, which is the plot of a really horrible movie called Snowpiercer. But there are other things like this professor that I was talking to where you It could just include painting buildings and urban spaces white, so you reflect more sun back out into space. Uh, Genetic engineering of crops to make them more reflective. And another one was where you would have ship owners adding things to their fuel so that when they leave wake in the ocean, that will reflect the uh, sun back up. I was just thinking this is all the sort of a roundabout way of saying that yeah, we've lost hope that we can decarbonize quick enough because this is basically the the pessimist view of the world. I think that we need to develop these technologies because what we're doing to cut fossil fuels isn't going to be enough. So I think I'd like to hear from people in the contribution section about whether or not, do you think that we need to basically develop these backup options that might not work and have these really risky downsides? Or 
are they just too risky and we should just not be touching things like putting giant mirrors in space which again is like an episode of the simpsons or something yeah i'd be interested what people think on this partly because of that money issue you know if you do have so many types of technologies when it comes to decarbonization technologies and storage technologies and everything like that and then you're also looking at this you're diluting the pot of money that you have anyway but then also listening to it I don't know where you draw the line because things like painting buildings white just feels yeah sure paint the buildings white and then also that comes into adaptation so you would possibly do that anyway but then you get some of the things you mentioned where it's like okay should should we be doing that? I mean, particularly if you're thinking about polluting further. But like you said, I also thought this was science fiction because I read, I don't know if you ever read Artemis Fowl. Oh, yes. But like, yes. In the sixth book, he like invents this thing. It's like a kid's book for people who haven't read it. And like it shoots reflective snowflakes into the world. And yeah, so that that's the only experience I've ever had of it. I'm afraid they didn't have a huge discussion on the ethics of that type of thing in the kid's book, uh-huh. but... It intrigued me about it anyway. It comes in useful now. I think it had fairy technology in it though, so we might have to do a bit more research and development to work out how to do it without fairies. It actually tied in quite nicely with your Thursday episode about carbon removals, actually, I thought, because the sort of contingency plan here is that we're not slowing down global warming quick enough or climate change quick enough, so you do all this solo geoengineering. And in the meantime, you do carbon dioxide removals to make climate changes impact less and then you can theoretically switch off all this solar geoengineering because you'll have removed enough carbon from the atmosphere but if you haven't and for whatever reason you stop putting aerosols into the atmosphere because you can't afford it anymore or the government falls you have what is called a termination shock and that's when your sci-fi disaster movie dystopian future starts happening maybe yeah, I find that interesting. I link that back to something else we've talked about with carbon dioxide removals before, is that you have to start developing this stuff so that when you need it, it's there. You can't turn around and think, oh, I need this, and then be facing 15 years of research and development. So I mean, maybe it's a good thing they're talking about it. I mean, probably a good thing we work out whether we want it or not before it's too late. But yeah, it's an interesting thing to be talking about. I think that was sort of the final takeaway I had from the episode is that Switzerland has this idea to set up this UN expert panel on it, not to promote it, but to sort of have a forum for people to discuss it and think about whether or not it should be used. And I I think ultimately it is a good idea. Does it legitimize it as a technology? That's an argument I think you can stand on either side of and people will think one thing or another of course and if people want to add in the episode what they do think but i think the more people talk about it the more you can actually decide is this a good idea or not so yeah it'd be really interesting to hear people's thoughts on it and what about next week do you have anything in the works already i've done an interview with george zachman from bruegel about actually going back to what we were talking about earlier interconnectivity in europe and particularly looking more at the economic side of it and efficiency and yeah, it was really interesting to look at the benefits that they're seeing. And we also talked about some of the lessons that maybe that EU has learned and, and why it's good for countries to work together, but maybe why they're not. So it was an interesting conversation. Fantastic. Look forward to hearing about that one. My one for Monday is going to be about uh, shipping again. I've done a few recently, but it is an interesting sector. This one's about a new proposal by the World Shipping Council that wants to 
basically cut that cost gap between the fuels that ships use now and the alternative ones that companies want to start rolling out. So we're going to hear about what that plan involves and the likelihood of it actually becoming something that can be deployed because the shipping industry is notoriously prone to vested interests and not doing anything unless it's kind of forced to. So we'll see what happens there. Excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Fantastic. And as Kira said earlier, we need to hear your feedback as well. So on the episode here or on other episodes, you should definitely leave a feedback about what you think that we should be looking into, investigating, and we'll do our best to oblige. I still have one slot free for next week, so any ideas are welcome. Come on, people, get on it. Many thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back on Monday with more episodes of The Jolt. These Friday episodes, as well as Mondays, are free to air, and we certainly hope you're enjoying them, and we welcome all of your feedback, so do let us know in the comments or on social media. If you aren't a member yet and would like access to the full five a week, then you're in luck. Joining our ever-growing community has never been easier or more rewarding. As an extra incentive, have a free month on us, no strings. There's a link in the show notes, or you can simply head over to foresightmedia.com forward slash onboarding forward slash the jolt. Have a great weekend wherever you're listening from. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Thank you.